the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening and welcome to the first of three sessions exploring Jesus' prayer in John 17. My name's Richard Judd and I'm a member here at Belmont Exeter. Well, it may not feel like summer, but welcome to the month of August. Now, August is that period of time when, for many, normal life goes on hold. Normal life pauses for a few weeks as schools close and many people take their annual holidays. For some, August is an opportunity to rest or pause from their normal routines as they go on holiday. Clubs, activities and regular events are stopped. But for others, it's a time of increased work, especially if they work in the holiday related jobs such as hospitality, transportation and have to cover for colleagues while they're on holiday. Then when September comes around, for many, normal routines resume. But not for everybody. Sometimes September is not a return to the old patterns of July, but a move on to new things. August then becomes a pause between the old and the new. New schools, new jobs, new friendships and new church communities because of the things I've already mentioned. This summer, both of my daughters passed their professional qualifications and have moved on to full-time paid employment. Life no longer will look or feel quite the same again for them. They're entering a new phase of life. Well, Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 of John's Gospel occurs at a transition point in his own life and ministry, when he leaves his old teaching ministry behind, which we read about in John chapters 2 through to 12, and instead he turns to embrace a new type of ministry launched through his death and resurrection, which is recorded in chapters 18 through to 20. Now, in ancient Judaism, departing leaders, departing prophets and rabbis often gave final words of instructions for their followers that they were leaving behind. And we see Jesus doing this in John chapters 13 through to 16. The scholars call this the farewell discourse. Now, these final words traditionally included a departing prayer. For example, we can read Moses' departing prayer in Deuteronomy 32 to 33. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is his departing prayer. Now, it's worth noting that departing prayers were public prayers, not private prayers. People listened into them. They heard what was being said. Since they occurred at the point between the past and the future, these prayers deliberately summarise what had already been taught earlier in the person's ministry. They often included what people should believe and how they should live. So tonight, as we explore verses 1 through to 5 in particular, I am going to suggest some of the key points Jesus wanted his disciples to take away as they listened to him pray. What Jesus wanted them to believe and how he wanted them to live out their lives as he prepared to leave them and embrace his own death, resurrection and ascension. And as modern day 21st century disciples of Jesus, we too can learn from his prayer. So as I read verses 1 through 5, I wonder what stands out to you from this section of his prayer. What words and ideas grab your attention? We've been spending over a year going through John's Gospel in the morning services. 
So I wonder what themes Jesus returns to now in this prayer. What does he want his disciples to pick up on and to continue as he departs? So let me read John 17 verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Well, I wonder if anything leapt out at you from this reading. What is Jesus trying to teach us? I think verse 1 actually presents a summary of the whole section, and some would argue the whole prayer of chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So tonight we will explore three related themes uh, from verse 1. And I've managed to get the first letter to be the same, simply by using the word the. The Father's glory, the Father's love, the Father's timing. And to be honest, the first two points are actually the same point, but with the Father's love being an expansion. So let us start with the Father's glory. The central thrust of Jesus' prayer is that his life, his words and deeds glorify God the Father. And verse 4 expands on verse 1, where it says, I have brought you glory on earth. Well, I wonder how often do we use glory language in our everyday life? When did you last use the word glory or glorious or glorify outside of perhaps a formal church setting? And even in a formal church setting, we don't often explain what the word means. We just tend to use it and assume people know. I think the only time I might use these words outside of a church setting is when I'm talking about a beautiful view or sunset. I might say, what a glorious sight. But equally, I could say, what a wonderful, amazing, outstanding, superb view. I'm simply describing how the view is something special, something that impacts me, that moves me. Is this what Jesus meant when he said, I have brought you glory on earth? How would you explain the glory of God or what it means to glorify God? In the Bible, God's glory or the act of glorifying God refers to times when God's character, God's qualities or even God's presence in some tangible way is revealed on earth. For example, in Luke chapter 2, we read about the angel appearing to the shepherds on the hill outside Bethlehem to announce the birth of Jesus. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The shepherds experienced the fear of the Lord because they encountered, they felt the power, majesty, the authority and presence of God with the arrival of God's messenger. And in Psalm 19 verse 1 we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And here the very existence of the universe reveals that God is the creator God. 
He is the God who has the power and authority and desire to create and sustain the cosmos. In fact, I remember a time when I was on teaching practice in North Devon and I was staying on a farm and one night I just stepped outside of the building. There were no street lights. There was no naked lights anyway, anywhere. And I looked up and I just saw the enormity of the universe. The Milky Way was there. The stars beyond counting were above me. And it raised questions about the enormity of the universe, but also about the significance or insignificance of myself. It started for me a journey of exploration, which eventually led to my faith in Jesus and worship of God. And throughout scripture, we have these expressions and experiences of glory, the glory of God, or people seeking to glorify God. God's glory is the revealing of God on earth. The God who is beyond time and space is revealed in time and space. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus glorifies God in a couple of very specific ways. Firstly, Jesus reveals God as father. Look at the opening word in verse one. Jesus uses the term father to refer to God. God is presented in relational, familial, personal terms. He's not presented in the same way that other gods of other religious systems in the ancient world understood their God. This is familial, relational, personal. In fact, John includes the term father as a description or revelation of the character and nature of God more than any of the other Gospels combined. Jesus glorifies God through revealing their relationship as father and son, which in turn will reveal something about how God also relates to his creation. In his prayer in chapter 17, Jesus actually refers to God as father six times. Furthermore, listen to verse three again. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, within Jesus's Jewish historical cultural context, to know someone is not to gain some intellectual, factual knowledge about the person. It's not to store away a piece of information in our brains and memories that we can regurgitate and recall at some future point. To know someone involves experience and intimacy. Many of you know I'm married to Alison. Well, knowing that information doesn't mean that you know me. You've gained some information about me, but in a Jewish historical context, that is not knowing the person. Knowing involves engaging all aspects of one's being and not just the intellect. It means a deep sense of being connected to someone. I don't know if you've recently watched the film Avatar. I had the opportunity last week to watch it. Avatar The Way of Water. And I'll have to be honest, I think the first film's better. But like the first film, it includes the idea of connections or interconnection between all living beings. There is talk of the great guiding spirit, Awa. But that interaction that they have, a physical interaction with connection, somehow a spiritual interaction is very different to the way that Christianity and Judaism teach about the connection and interconnection with God. 
because God is separate from his creation, not part of it, which is the opposite in many ways of what's going on in the film Avatar. Christianity and Judaism teach that God is separate, but humans can still connect with God. We can actually become the children of God when we accept his fatherhood over us. So Jesus' prayer here in John 17 reminds us and encourages us to approach God as someone who is our eternal father. By praying to God as father, we are acknowledging the relationship he wants to have with us. So I wonder, how often do you talk to God as father? And how helpful do you find father language if you do use it when praying? What images and feelings does calling God Father actually create in you? Let's now dig a little bit deeper into the Father heart of God. I'm sure for all of us here tonight, the term Father will create certain memories of our own earthly fathers and even our own role if we are fathers ourselves. Our fathers are not or were not perfect. I'm certainly not. Just ask Alison and my own daughters. All our fathers are fallen, damaged people and so fail to live up to the perfect standard of fatherhood. Our fathers are not perfect role models of fatherhood. So there's a danger that our damaged understanding of fatherhood influences our understanding of the father heart of God. Yes, at times, of course, our earthly fathers may reflect good and helpful, generous, loving aspects of what it means to be father. But at other times, they may present distorted, weak or just simply wrong examples, which can damage how we relate to God as father. So while Jesus's prayer reminds us to draw close to God as father, his prayer also goes further to reveal what it means for God to be father. In and through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the father heart of God is revealed. Perfect fatherhood can be experienced because of God's perfect love. God the Father's promised covenant commitment to his children is described and explained in John's writings. Not only in those famous verses of John 3.16, and I think 17 should always be added into 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or in John's other important verse that we read in 1 John verse 8. Sorry, 1 John 4 verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. But also in John 17 verse 4, we see what it means to be a loving, father-hearted God. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Or to make Jesus' comment here more explicit, this is the way I read the text. I have revealed your loving fatherhood by agreeing to break the power of sin, death and the devil over human lives. The death and resurrection of Jesus not only saves us from sin, not only purifies us from the contamination of sin, not only declares us right with God, it also restores our personal, our intimate relationships with the Father. 
through the work of Jesus, the work we read about in John 18 through to 20, we become the living children of God. We're adopted into God's family. This is how Jesus also glorifies God. Jesus faithfully completed his God-given work to reveal the love of God's Father heart and so bring the reality of eternal life, intimacy, connection with God to people. So when we pray, firstly we can remember we're approaching our true and perfect Father who loves us intently, who is committed to us, who does not give up on us, who is willing to reach into time and space to restore the broken relationship we have with him. He is the loving God who welcomes back all those who turn back to him, who respond to his call to return home. Our prayer life should be shaped by our identity in Christ as a child of God. We can trust our Father God and so share our inmost desires and thoughts with him. We can be open and honest in our prayers as we acknowledge our dependence on him as our Father. And secondly, we can pray for the confidence and opportunities day by day, moment by moment, to glorify God ourselves. As we seek to imitate the life of the eternal Son of God, Jesus, by loving God and loving our neighbours, we glorify God as we help reveal his love through the telling the story and living the life, simple acts of service to those both within our church community and those outside. Before we move to explore my third point, I need to tell you that there are two really helpful podcasts which explore the themes I have mentioned already tonight. The glory of God or glorifying God. The Bible Project, episode from October 2017, called Language of Faith Glory. And the Westminster Theological Centre, WTC's podcast, Theodisc, from May 2023, called Glory in the Gospel of John. And this explores how glory relates to the Son of God as well as the Father. But as we draw to a close, let me add one final reflection on John 17 verse 1. By examining the phrase, the hour has come. Timing is one of the key themes that runs throughout John's Gospel. We first meet this expression back in chapter 2 when Jesus and his mother were attending the wedding at Canaan. We read in John chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. In all, there are nine references to the hour or time having not come or having come in John's gospel. And in this prayer, Jesus declares that all his activities his words and deeds up to now have been preparation for what is going to happen next. Jesus chose now, this time, this place to deliberately confront both the Jewish and Roman authorities, to bring about his own death and subsequent resurrection and then ascension. We read of his arrest and subsequent events in John 18 onwards, the next chapter after this prayer. So Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 reminds us that there can be a right time and a wrong time to act. We estimate that Jesus was around 33 years when he was crucified, that he'd been teaching and ministering for three years previously, 
but only now does he set out to be crucified. The problem is Western culture tends to celebrate the instant. Technology has allowed us to reduce waiting times for things. If we want something, we can have it now. Now, to be honest, I love chips. And as a child, my mother would regularly get out the old chip pan um, and put it onto the stove. In fact, she's still got that chip pan that sits on the stove and she's 87 and yet still cooks chips the same way. She'll wash and peel the potatoes. She'll chop them up. She'll wash the starch off them and then pat them dry before dropping them into that hot fat. Well, oven chips have half the time taken to make chips. Perhaps it took 40 minutes to an hour before, but now with oven chips, you can have them depending upon their size in about 20 minutes. But we also have microwavable chips, where in three minutes you can have chips. Or if you want French fries, even within a minute, 60 seconds. Our society today often teaches us that quick, fast, instant is good. How many of us today have the self-discipline to watch one episode of your favourite TV series each week, waiting for those seven days to go by to get to the next one, rather than binge watch the whole series in one or two sessions? So this prayer, in fact, the whole of the Gospel of John, reminds us that God's timing may not always be our timing. In his book, Three Mile an Hour God, the Japanese theologian Kusuki Koyama says, Love has its speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk and therefore the speed the love of God walks. What Koyamo is talking about is the idea that God grows things in us through our lived experience, that God often doesn't rush in and transform things radically, quickly, instantly. For much of the activity of God, time is an important essence to help mature and ripen our spiritual growth. Remember, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, etc., etc., when we're praying for things to happen in life, there may be legitimate reasons why we want things to happen now. The healing of someone, the prevention of suffering, the ending of wars. But in general, the God of the universe walks at a pace slower than our culture tells us it should happen at. Jesus's prayer reminds us that we need to seek God and ask that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven but at his chosen time and in his chosen way. So this prayer and these five verses we've explored this evening, the Father's glory, the Father's love, the Father's timing, are all themes that we can take away and are central to John's gospel message. And we can use them to help shape the way we pray ourselves. So why not pray this week for opportunities to glorify God through your work and deeds? To think about how you will use this reminder prayer about the Father heart of God to shape your own prayers. And if you struggle with impatience and are frustrated by unanswered prayer, perhaps recognise how you've been influenced by the values of our instant society. And perhaps pray for a growing sense of trust in God's timing surrounding aspects of your life. 
Next week, we'll move on to John 17 verses nine, uh, 6 through to 19. Adrian's going to come and talk about the title, He Prays for His Disciples. Thank you for joining us. And we're going to go into an extended time of prayer now.